go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You that You are so merciful to us. We're thankful that You've loved us with an everlasting love. How deep the Father's love for us. Certainly, beyond searching out, Your love is unfathomable to us. O oh Lord, that we as a church would be able to ascertain what are the heights and depths and the breadth and the length and know the love of Christ which has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit who's given to us. The love that has been expressed and displayed for us in the cross where our Savior bled and died in our place. We're thankful for Your love. Thankful for this little church, Lord. Thankful that there's a bunch of people here, a group of people who are filled with all knowledge, able to admonish and teach one another, full of all goodness, growing in grace, people who love Christ, love the Word of God. You don't come here on the Lord's Day to be entertained. You don't come here for shenanigans. You come here because you love the Lord. You love the Word. And I'm thankful for these people. And we're thankful how you've used our church, even in the midst of a pandemic, to remain open and minister the Word and reach out to the community and how you've grown us so graciously and faithfully. And we thank You for that, Lord. I pray You would continue to use our church to turn this place upside down for the Gospel. Lord, that we would look back a few decades from now and be amazed at how You used a little church like ours to transform this place for the glory of Jesus Christ. May it be, Lord. Be with us now as we open the Scripture, as we come to hear from heaven, to hear from our God. We pray that You would help us to understand Your Word and help us to live it out for Your glory. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. As you know, we began last week a study of this book. Last week was basically a general introduction and overview of 1 John. Talked about some of the basic context. But this morning we're going to actually begin studying the book verse by verse by digging in to the first verses. If you're visiting us with us this morning, that's what we do. We take the Word of God as it comes. We go word by word, verse by verse, usually very slowly through the Scripture. We worked our way through Colossians in about nine months. First, second, and third John will probably take us about a year. So we're going to dive deep into this epistle starting this morning. But before we do that, I want to just quickly remind you of the context that we discussed a little bit last week. First John was written by the Apostle John around A.D. 90 or so, from <coughs> Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, by the way. And John wrote this due to a group of false teachers. There were some false teachers that were, dece- were attempting to deceive the Christian faithful at Asia Minor. Remember, chapter 2, verse 26, John said, I'm writing these things concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There were a group of false teachers trying to deceive these believers of Asia Minor. There were heretics. Some have identified, or most theologians have identified this heresy with an early form of Gnosticism, incipient Gnosticism, who were the Gnostics. Well, they were highly influenced by what is called Platonism. Platonism, they were Greek philosophical dualists. They taught that matter is inherently evil and spirit is good, and therefore anything material is in and of itself evil. This led them to deny divine creation. They said there's no way the true God, the good God, who is pure spirit and transcendent light, had anything to do with this world. There's no way He created the world. Instead, they postulated that a series of beings or emanations came forth from this God, like lesser gods, 
And it was one of these lesser gods whom they termed the Demiurge that made the world. As a result, the spirits God made were trapped in material bodies, and the goal of salvation then in Gnosticism isn't a dying Savior bearing our sin. Instead, it's coming to some sort of enlightenment through some secret and even mystical knowledge. That's where the word Gnostic comes from, the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. So clearly, the Gnostics had an erroneous theology. They had an erroneous understanding of the Gospel. They said Jesus isn't really God. There's no way a good God would ever take on a human body. He wasn't really God. He was one of the lesser gods. And He didn't really become a man. He seemed to be a man. He appeared to be a man, like a phantom called docetism. The Greek word dokine, meaning to seem. He was just like a phantom So they denied the deity of Christ. They denied the humanity of Christ. They denied the substitutionary work of Christ. And they were presenting a counterfeit version of Christianity. A different Christianity. In response, John wrote this epistle as a series of tests by which one can determine if he's a Christian or not. By which one can distinguish between true Christianity from counterfeit Christianity. In chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose is for Christian assurance so that his readers might know that they are saved. So he gives a series of tests. There are three tests. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. John's going to lay these out over and over and over again. The true Christian believes the truth. The true Christian obeys the truth. The true Christian loves in truth. That's how you know if you're a true believer or not. And in our text this morning, John begins by dealing with the first test. The doctrinal test. The Christological test. The true believer believes the truth about Christ. That's where it starts. We're going to begin focusing this morning on verses 1-4, to four, though you know me. We're only going to get through the first two verses, and the next week we'll get through verses 3 and 4. But these verses serve as John's introduction, his preface, his prologue. In this passage, John sets before us his proclamation. This is John's proclamation. And in this text, we're going to see two things. First of all, we see the subject of his proclamation... That is to answer the question, who does John proclaim? And then we'll see the purposes of his proclamation next week, which is to answer the question, why does John proclaim? Who and why? So we'll begin this morning with the subject. With that in mind, let me read our text for us this morning. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our eyes? what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. In his commentary on 1 John, Daniel Aiken wrote these words, Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's correct. Daniel Aiken 
is correct. At the heart of Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. To get Him wrong is to get everything wrong. As John Gill put it, Christ is the sum of the Gospel. Or the sum of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. He's the heart of Christianity and the very sum and substance of the Gospel. In Matthew 16, while Jesus was on His way through Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples a very, very important question. And there in Matthew 16, Matthew records the words of our Lord and we read this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, there were many different opinions as to who Jesus was. Many ideas. But then Jesus goes on to make the question more personal. He goes on to say, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that anyone will ever answer. In fact, it's the question that everyone in this room has to answer. Who is Jesus? It's so important because your eternal fate hinges on what you say about Jesus, what you believe about Christ. In John 8.24, Jesus told the Jews, For unless you believe I am He, you will die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe the truth about Christ, you will die guilty of your sin and be damned. You will go to hell. If you get Christ wrong, you are damned. That's how important this is. Nothing is more important than believing the truth about Christ. So what's the problem? The problem is that there are many who, in the words of 2 Corinthians 11.4, preach another Jesus, a different Christ. The believers of Asia Minor were experiencing that. They were dealing with the Gnostics preaching a false Christ, one who is not fully God nor truly man, a different Jesus. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's not something we're foreign to. That's something we're not immune to. We're immune to. We have many groups today who also propagate a false Jesus. A different Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe that Jesus is not God. He's a God. He's Michael the Archangel. That's who Jesus is. The Mormons would have you believe that Jesus isn't really the true and eternal God. He's just the spirit brother of Satan. He's just a created God like many others in the universe. The Muslims would have you believe that Jesus is just a prophet second to Muhammad. Just second down the line. Many in our day want to conclude that Jesus was simply a good man or a good religious teacher. All these groups have a common denominator. Did you see it? They all assert that Jesus is nothing but a mere creature. A mere creature. So in light of that, in light of the Christological heresies in our day, it is absolutely imperative that you and I believe the truth about Christ. Our eternity hinges on that. John knew this. John knew that. That's why he wrote this letter. He desired that his readers be able to distinguish between a false Christ, the false Christ of Gnosticism, and the true Christ of the Bible. So we must believe the truth about Christ. But that demands that we know the truth about Christ. That we know who Christ is. So just 
who is the biblical Jesus? In light of all of the ideas and the thoughts and the rumors being spread about Him, how do we know who He is? The answer is we go to the Word of God. Who is this Jesus? Who is the Jesus that John proclaimed? That's what John's going to answer for us in our text this morning. And he's going to do that by highlighting the two distinct natures of Christ. The two distinct natures. In the text, we're going to see His eternal deity and His historical humanity. His eternal deity and His historical humanity. To put it another way, Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. Fully God, fully man. So first, let's consider His eternal deity. Look at verse 1. John writes, What was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? What is John talking about? What was from the beginning? What is the what? Who does what refer to? Well, the answer is the word of life. The word of life. Look at the bottom of verse 1. Concerning the word of life. This book is about the word of life. John is writing and proclaiming about the word of life. And the word of life, John says, is what was from the beginning. Now what, or better yet, who is this word of life? Who is the word of life? Well, to answer that question, we need to go to the first chapter of John's Gospel. Right? Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. A few books to the left. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I told you before, John wrote not only the epistles, he also wrote the Gospel that bears his name. And so we're going to find him writing about really the same kind of themes here in his Gospel. John 1, starting in verse 1. We're familiar with these words. John writes, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's essentially what he just said in 1 John, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is the one who is from the beginning, and He is God. The Word is God. That makes sense. If He's from the beginning, He's got to be God. Then go down to verse 14. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, who is from the beginning, who is God, who existed from all of eternity became flesh. He became a man, a human being. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That's what John is referring to by the Word. Remember in Revelation 19.13, as John is prophetically depicting the coming of Christ, he says His name is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. He's the Word of life. Back in our text, here in 1 John 1, the Word of life is what was from the beginning. That is to say, Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternal God. That's who He is. If you're from the beginning... There's only one category you can be in, and that's God. God alone is from the beginning. Now this is reminiscent of two places in the New Testament, right? It echoes two New Testament 
or sorry, two biblical passages. Is this idea of being from the beginning. We looked at the first one, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's in the context of deity and eternality. But then there's another place we read those words in the beginning. Where is that? Genesis. Genesis 1 1. What does that say? In the beginning, what? You got right, didn't you? You know that verse. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, right? So the beginning in Genesis 1.1 refers to the beginning of creation. The beginning of the time-space material universe. Eternity passed as God began to create. The beginning then refers to eternity. And that's what John's talking about here. John's talking about the very beginning. In the beginning, Jesus didn't come into being. He already was. For He always was. He is what was from the beginning. That word there translated was, it's the Greek preposition, or the Greek word in. And the verb behind that is the word I me, the Greek word I me. Very, very interesting word. It's a word that is used of God and Christ throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. The New Testament, as well as the Greek Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus is claiming to be eternal. That's what he's claiming, or that's what John's claiming for him. You see, in John chapter 8, I've already alluded to that, Jesus says, you'll die in your sins unless you believe, literally in the Greek, ego I me, there's that verb. Unless you believe I am, the Hebrew <coughs> added. The literal Greek is ego I me, I am. And we hear those, we've heard those words before, those words I am. Where do we hear those words? The book of... Later on in John. Later in John, that's true. But think of the Old Testament. The book of Exodus, right? Chapter 3, verse 14. What does God tell Moses when He says, What is your name? I am who I am. You are to tell the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. That's the Hebrew verb, Hayah. Hayah. It's where we actually derive the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four letters that, in the Hebrew that make up the divine name Yahweh. You can hear it there, can't you? Hayah, Yahweh. That's where we get it. That's where we derive the name. Jesus is unequivocally declaring Himself to be Yahweh. He is claiming to be God. That's why in verse 58 of John 8, He goes on and says, before Abraham was born, ego I me. I am. I am. And you know, if you compare the John 8 Greek with the Isaiah 43 Greek, it's unmistakable who Jesus is claiming to be. In Isaiah 43.10, we read the words of Yahweh. And here's what we read. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand, here's the Greek, literally, hate ego I me, that I am. You may believe that I am. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. This is in the context of deity and exclusivity. One God. And he says that you may know and believe, hate ego I me, that I am. John 8, 24, Jesus says, you'll die in your sins unless you believe, hate ego I me, that I am. Same three Greek words. Jesus is unmistakably claiming to be God. That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They knew he wasn't just claiming to be old. They would have laughed at him and asked him if he thought he was a vampire. No, he was claiming deity. Deity. In other words, He is the eternal I Am, the self-existing One. 
In Micah 5.2, the Lord, speaking through the prophet, declares this about the coming Messiah. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, the Messiah, who would be born in Bethlehem according to His human nature, according to His divine nature, is from eternity. He is the eternal God. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be the eternal God. In Isaiah 9.6, we read another familiar prophecy about the coming Messiah. There Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah is Mighty God and Eternal Father. Therefore, He must be the Eternal God. Jesus is God. So the Gnostics were wrong. They were dead wrong. John begins this epistle by launching right into the deadliest error of Gnosticism. Namely, its erroneous Christology. Its improper view of Christ. The Gnostics said Jesus is just a God. Just one of these emanations. John says, no. Christ is not a mere angel. He's not a mere creature. He is the everlasting God. He is the eternal one. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door, selling you the idea that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, run away. When the Mormons come knocking on your door and say, hey, Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. He was exalted to Godhood like you and me. Run away. Run away. When the Muslims come and say, he's just a prophet second to Muhammad. Run away. They're liars. They're all liars. Jesus is not a mere creature. He is the eternal God. In the words of John MacArthur, all false teachers have an erroneous Christology. I've told you that before. That is the epitome of a false teacher. He has a misunderstanding, a distorted view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lies about Jesus. Jesus is the eternal God. This is the Jesus in whom you and I must believe. And unless you believe that He is the great eternal I Am, you will die in your sins. So that's Christ's eternal deity. But that's not all we see. Secondly, John informs us of His historical humanity. His historical humanity. Look again at verse 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning is what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands. John says we've heard and seen and touched the word of life. It's amazing, isn't it? He has experienced the word of life via his senses. Via his senses. The we here is probably a reference to John and the other apostles. It's an apostolic we. They were the ones who had seen Him and heard Him and touched Him. They were, as 2 Peter 1.16 says, eyewitnesses of His majesty. They were the ones. So in one sense, this, is John, this isn't just John's proclamation. This is the apostolic proclamation. John, as the last living apostle at the end of the first century, is writing a summary of the apostolic message as a representative of all the apostles. This is the apostolic 
word. Who are you going to believe? The heretics with their new truth? Or the apostles who are eyewitnesses of His glory? It's an easy decision for me. So John says, we've seen Him. We've heard Him. We've touched Him. We heard Him. That word heard, akuo in the Greek. Where we get the English word acoustics. It means to comprehend by hearing. They comprehended the reality and historicity of Jesus the God-man by hearing Him. They heard His sermons. They heard His parables. They heard His prayers. They were with Him for three years hearing everything coming from His mouth. They were there. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father said, this is My beloved Son. They were there. They heard it all. We heard Him. But not only did they hear Him, they saw Him. They saw Him. Jesus is what we have seen with our eyes, John says. The word hara'o, hara'o means to be acquainted with by experience. The apostles were intimately acquainted with Jesus experientially. They weren't making this up. This wasn't a myth that they came up with. And notice that he says, seen with our eyes. Why does he say that? Because this isn't a mystical vision that the Gnostics would say. Jesus wasn't a phantom. This wasn't an ecstatic vision. This was a literal, physical appearance of the God-man and John and the apostles physically saw them with their own eyes. They were eyewitnesses of His ministry. And more than that, John says, not only have we seen Him, but we have looked at Him. Why? He just said that, didn't he? Well, the word looked is a little different. The word theaome, it means to look long at, to look intently, to gaze upon. It's the root of our English word theater. I'll have to ask Caitlin if I said that right later. The word theater. Just as you and I would go to a movie, a theater, and intently watch the movie set before us, so the apostles intently gazed at the God-man Jesus. They watched Him. They saw Him. You know, often if we kind of shift our head quickly, we might miss-see things, right? Our senses aren't always reliable. The other day I was driving at work and I passed a yard, kind of looked that way, looked back, thought I saw Bigfoot walking. This is how these stories happen, isn't it? And then I looked back and realized it was a one-dimensional poster. But from the way I moved my head and the car was moving, it looked like Bigfoot was walking because I just glanced. But the apostles didn't just glance at Jesus. This isn't like, oh, I thought I saw him. Maybe he was just a fan. No, they looked long at him. They were with him for three years looking intently, watching his deeds, watching his works. They saw him. They looked at him. And finally, John says, not only have we heard him, not only have we seen him, but we have touched him with our hands. It's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed. They were there when He cleansed the temple. They were there when He fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, when He walked on water, when He calmed the sea. John was there when He was crucified and crushed under the wrath of God for the sins of the world. They were there for three years. They saw all of it. And even more, they touched Him with their very own hands. And they saw Him and touched Him, not not just before the resurrection, but more astonishingly, after the resurrection. In Luke 24.39, after the resurrection, Jesus told the disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. 
Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. John was there when Jesus said that. And remember, John is writing as a refutation of the Gnostic heretics. And there are two variations of this Gnostic heresy. One of them is what I called it earlier, docetism. The idea that Jesus wasn't really a man. He just seemed to be. He was a phantom, kind of like a ghost. John says no. If Jesus was really a man, a real historical man in real history, we've seen Him, we looked at Him, we touched Him, we have verifiable eyewitness to the historicity of the God-man, the Lord Jesus. John knew this firsthand as an eyewitness. And he not only writes this to refute the Gnostic heresy, but also to confirm and encourage us to have faith in the historical reliability of the Gospel message. You see, one of the great things about Christianity is that it's not a myth. This isn't a, a religion of uh, where one man kind of has a vision and then tells a story. Christianity is a religion of eyewitness testimony. That's one of the great realities. You know, it's not Joseph Smith, one guy with a vision from God. It's not, not Muhammad, one guy who got a vision and then try to kill everybody to make them believe it. No, this is eyewitness. In fact, Jesus, Paul says, was seen post-resurrection by 500 eyewitnesses at once. That's enough to convince any Lord. 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom lost their lives because they would not deny that they had seen the risen Jesus. This didn't happen in a corner. This wasn't private. Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He died publicly as a propitiation in His blood for everyone to see. He engaged in public ministry. He did public miracles. His own opponents couldn't refute it and deny it. He died publicly. He rose publicly. He ascended publicly. And one day He's coming again publicly for every eye to see Him. This is a public ministry. So they were eyewitnesses. This didn't happen in a corner. The one they heard, the one they seen, the one they touched was the real Word of Life. Now why the Word of Life? That's a title we see three places in the New Testament. We see it in John 1.1. We see it in our text here. We see it in Revelation 19.13. We've looked at those passages. Why does John use that? It's a rare title ascribed to Jesus. John's the only one who uses it for him. Why does John call Jesus the Word? Let me give you a little background on that. The Greek word for word here is the word logos. Logos. And the Greeks would have been very familiar with the logos. To the Greeks, the logos was the impersonal force, the impersonal kind of principle of reason that gave order to the universe. Kind of like a higher power. But the Jews would have had a very different idea of the logos. To the Jews, the logos was the means by which God created the world. This isn't some impersonal force. This is a personal God speaking all of creation into existence by His divine Word. In Psalm 33.6, the psalmist says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. In Hebrews 11.3, we read that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Over and over and over again in the Genesis 1 account, we read, Then God said, Then God said, Then God said, God creates by His logos, by His Word. 
And Jesus, as the Word of God, is the Creator. He's the Creator. But there's another concept that the Jews may have had when it comes to the Logos, the Word. The Word of God is not only the means by which He creates, the Word of God is the means by which He reveals Himself. The Word of God is the revelation of God. It is the revelation of God. In fact, that word logos has been defined this way, as a word, a word as the expression of a thought. That's what Christ is. He's the expression of the mind of God, of the character of God, of the will of God. Jesus is a visible, physical representation and expression of God. He's the incarnation of God. To illustrate this, let me read John 1.18 to you. John 1.18. John says, No one has seen God at any time. Now wait a minute. Didn't the Old Testament saints see God? No one has seen God at any time. Wait a minute. Didn't Moses see God? Didn't Abraham see God? Look what he says. No one has seen God at any time, but the only God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one's seen God because He's a spirit. He's invisible, but Jesus, the only begotten, the God who made the world, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, He's the one that reveals God. As the Word of God, Jesus is the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us in many ways in the last days. He's spoken to us in the Son. The Son is the full and final revelation of God. He is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature. That is to say, Jesus is one in essence with God. He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. That's why in John 14.9, Jesus could say, He who has seen Me is what? Seen the Father. Colossians 1, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God because He's God in the flesh. And therefore, He is the revelation of God. So He's the Word. He's the Word. And as the Word, He's the Creator and the revelation of God. But He's also the life. He's the Word of life. And then in verse 2, He's just simply called the light. And at the bottom of verse 2, He's the eternal life. He's the Word of life, the life, and the eternal life. This is also reminiscent of what John said in his Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 4. He says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life. That is to say, Jesus is the source of all life. From all eternity, He has had life in Himself. He derives it from no one else. My children have been learning this week at homeschool about the law of biogenesis. Biogenesis. It's the law that states that life comes from life. It doesn't come from non-life. Right? We understand that. Evolution would have you believe that all of life spontaneously evolved from non-life. That is absurd, unscientific, and unobservational. But observational science tells us life comes from life. We see that every day. We see mothers having babies. We see animals giving birth to their, their children after their kind. That's what we see in nature. So there had to be a one who's the source of all life. One who has all life in Himself and gave it all to every, every other creature. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal life. As the self-existing God, He has life in Himself. That's why in John 5.26, Jesus said, As the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life 
in Himself. An essential attribute of God is life. God is the living God. And Christ, as the eternal self-existing God, has life in Himself. He's also the source of all life then, right? If He's the life, it all comes from Him. He's the source of physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. He's the source of physical life as the Creator. John 1.3 says, By the Word all things came into being, and apart from Him nothing has come into being that has come into being. Everything was created by Jesus as the Word. He's the source of physical life. But He's also the source of spiritual and eternal life. In John 14.6 we read familiar words, don't we? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Apart from Christ, there is no life. There is no salvation. No way to God. No hope of eternal life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone has life and gives it to whomever He wishes. Later on in chapter 5, John goes on to say, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If you're here today and you do not have Christ, you are the walking dead. You are dead in your sin. You have no life and there's no hope for you outside of Christ. He alone is the life. Even if you hate Him today, He is the very One that sustains your physical life and upholds you in your being. And He is the only One who can save you from your sin and give you eternal life. So Christ is the life. But that brings us to a question. How can this life, how can this eternal, invisible God be seen, heard, and touched by John the Apostle? How can the invisible be seen? John gives us the answer. Look at verse 2. And the life was manifested. The life was manifested. How could John and the apostles see, hear, and touch the invisible Word of life? Because He was manifested. That's a reference to the incarnation. Right? John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Verse Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. God became a man. The invisible became visible via the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the visible representation of God, is the Word of life. He's fully God, that's true, but He's fully man, right? We call this the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. The doctrine asserts that within the one person of Jesus, there exists two distinct natures, true deity and true humanity, indivisibly joined together in one person. Fully God, fully man. That's why Colossians 2.9, Paul says He's the fullness of deity in bodily form. Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. He was a real man. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He was a real man in real history. So John says, this is how we were able to see Him. This is how we were able to touch Him. And then he adds, And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Very important to note this. 
Note that John says He was with the Father. Jesus is not the Father. The preposition here is the Greek word pros. It literally could mean face-to-face with, communion with. Jesus, from the beginning, was in face-to-face communion with the Father. Now, I would never, I would never say something like this. I am with Jamie. Why would I say that? You would think I'm schizophrenic. You would think I'm irrational, have multi-personality disorder. That is very odd language to use. But I would say I'm with Jessica. That's my wife. I can be with her. We're distinct persons. So, for Jesus, if He is the Father, this is absurd language to say that He's with the Father. Perhaps you've never ran into these people, but there's a group called the Oneness Pentecostals, also known as Jesus Name Only. Uh, They go apostolic. They call themselves lots of things. We've encountered uh, a woman there at the clinic who's one of those. John was able to see that firsthand. And they deny the Trinity. They say that that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's not true. Jesus didn't send His Son to die on the cross. The Father sent Jesus the Son to die on the cross. Jesus wasn't with Himself. That's illogical. Jesus was with pros, theos. He was in communion with the Father from all eternity. John 17.5, Jesus says, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory I had with You before the world was. Jesus was with the Father in communion with Him from all eternity. So though Jesus is God, yet He's distinct from the Father in person. One with Him in essence, distinct in person. And I don't have time this morning to give a detailed explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity, but briefly, let me kind of summarize it for you. The Trinity teaches that there is one God who exists as one being, and yet three eternally distinct persons. And it is very important that we differentiate between the term being and person. There are not three beings in God. There's only one. But there's not one person in God. There are three. A being is what you are. A person is who you are. There's one what and three who's. One God and three eternally distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, but He is God. The Son is not the Spirit, but He is God. The Spirit is not the Father, but He is God. Three persons, one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is the one, the Son of the Father, the Word who was with the Father, that was manifested to us. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But now we have to ask ourselves this. What was the purpose of the Incarnation? What was the purpose of this manifestation? Well, in chapter 3, John tells us. Chapter 3, verse 8, John says this. He appeared in order to take away sins. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? We have sinned. God is holy. God cannot overlook sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He cannot leave the guilty unpunished. So if God's going to forgive us and justify us, He has to do it in a way that is just. And the solution is the incarnation, the cross, the God-man bearing our sin and taking it away at the cross. Paul told Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That by dying on the cross, He would bear the wrath of God, satisfy justice, and procure for us forgiveness of sin. He is the eternal life 
that was manifested to us, and by coming into this communion with Him, we partake in that eternal life. So this is the subject of John's proclamation. This is the who or the what that John proclaimed. The Word of Life. And what he wants us to know about this Word of Life is that He's fully God and fully man in one person. He's the God-man. The eternal God who took on flesh to save sinners. And we must believe it. We must believe the truth about Christ. It will not do to just believe in Jesus if it's not the right Jesus. If I came to you and I said, hey, you know, meet my friend Sean. She's seven foot four with blonde hair. Sean would blame you. He's not talking about me. Right? We know that. She's not seven foot four, to put it lightly, right? Neither am I. But try that with Jesus. Hey, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. Doesn't work. Doesn't work, right? Jesus is not the spirit brother of Satan. He's God. You have to believe that. That's why John wrote in chapter 5, at the very end of the letter, the last two verses, he says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. Watch this. This, that is His Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. That's what John just said. And then in verse 21, he closes with this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Any God that is not Christ is no God. Any Christ that is not God is a false Christ. One that cannot save, cannot destroy, because He doesn't exist. Only the Jesus of the Bible can save. The Jesus of the Gnostics cannot save. The Jesus of the Mormons cannot save. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, of the one that's Pentecostals, cannot save. Only the biblical Jesus can save you from your sin. Only the one that John proclaimed the true Jesus. Is that the Jesus in whom you believe today? Is that the Jesus you've put your hope in? If so, you'll never be disappointed. A sufficient Savior. Fully God, fully man, so that He might reconcile God and man together in the cross. That's the Jesus in whom we must believe. That's test number one. That's where John begins. He's going to do it over and over again. It's cyclical. John's going to go around and round and say this stuff again. So in the four weeks when you say, why does he keep talking about the same thing? It's John's fault. It's the Holy Spirit's fault. He put it that way. But it's because we need to be reminded. But now why did John proclaim? What are the purposes of his proclamation? That's where we'll pick up next week in verses 3 and 4. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the clarity of revelation. And it's so clear to us because of the Scripture, the written Word, but even more so because of the incarnate Word, the God-Man being manifested to us. What a wonderful reality. He wasn't a ghost or a phantom. He wasn't a God. He was the true God who partook of our nature that He might save us from the sin and the judgment that we've earned for ourselves. Thank You for that incarnation. I pray that each of us today believe in this Christ and that we would know it because we would love Him and obey His commandments. And now, Lord, I pray that we would go into the world with this Christ and proclaim Him to the nation. 
That we would tell our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers about the true Jesus who exclusively can save them from the judgment they deserve. Thank You for the biblical Christ. We pray these things in His name and for His glory. Amen.